I'm Yamilka Rodriguez, and this is the Brand Therapist Podcast, where we come together and dive deep into the psychology of branding. We live in a new era that asks us to step up and show our individuality, learn what makes us unique and different in this world. Let's open the door to possibilities so you can win in business, life, and relationships, because everything starts with you. Hello, David Lopez. I'm so happy to have you on my couch today on The Brand Therapist. I am so happy to be on your couch, Yamilka, and uh, very (laughs) pleased to join you. Let's get started and talk about what you do, what you're doing right now, what you are going to be doing in the up and coming future, just so we get to know you a little bit more. Sure. So what keeps me busy for the last 20 plus years, I've been in some form of business development or another. So I started on the for-profit side in sales and marketing, doing technical sales with a small manufacturer in uh, San Diego, California, which is where I'm from. and uh, they built the products in San Diego, but sold the products all over the world. And I got to do some really cool work around representing the brand and and selling those products. So that was my first part of my career was in in for-profit sales and marketing. About eight years into that career, I started to feel like there was something missing, feeling like I wanted to do something that allowed me to more directly kind of give back to my community, give back to making the world a better place. And so I started to look into nonprofits and learn more about what they were about. And I just got really excited. I just felt, oh my gosh, like I didn't even know these things existed, that there was such a concept as a nonprofit. And the more I learned about them, the more I decided, you know what, I think, I think I'm going to try and take everything I've learned on the for-profit side in sales and marketing and translate it over into the nonprofit world but I'll probably need to go back to school for that. So I did. I went back to school and finished my bachelor's degree at UCSD, uh, University of California, San Diego. And uh, while I was there, I got recruited by Teach for America to be a teacher. And uh, it it sounded really great. It sounded like something that would allow me to make that transition from the for-profit world into the nonprofit world. And so I applied to the program and was accepted. That took me to Houston, where I taught bilingual elementary transformational experience, right? To be able to see public education on the front lines, to be a bilingual teacher, like I was a bilingual student when I was growing up. And that just made me go even deeper on this concept of nonprofit is probably the right place for me. So after two years of teaching, I was the founding executive director of Teach for America San Diego. So I started my own chapter of Teach for America in my hometown, ran it as the founding executive director for six years. And then in 2018, my wife and I found out that we were pregnant And uh, we made a move to Louisville, Kentucky, to be closer to her family. So for the last almost four years now, I've been the chief development officer at Metro United Way, which is the local United Way uh, chapter, works in six, uh, actually seven counties in this region, in both southern Indiana and in Kentucky. So I've been in charge of all their fundraising work, individual, corporate, and foundation. And I'm about to make a transition. So I'm really excited about some upcoming changes for me. I'm going to go back to my roots a bit, so to speak, with uh, Teach for All. So Teach for All is an international network of countries that have their own version of Teach for America, like Teach for Mexico and Teach for China, and I'll be their global knowledge lead for fundraising and development. So I'll work with CEOs and heads of development all around the world trying to help them be even more successful with their fundraising work. Uh, And on the side, as if that wasn't enough, I'll be going deeper into some uh, consulting work. I've I've done consulting on and off here and there, 
but I've decided to go just more all out with my own business and focus on consulting with entrepreneurs of color on their fundraising for investment capital. So a little bit of a connection there between what I'll be doing in the day job, what I'll be doing with my own business. Definitely a really different uh, path that I'll be taking, but I'm really excited about it too. Wow. I didn't know you were doing all that. So that sounds super, <laughs> super exciting. It's it's good to know that you're also doing your own business. It's so funny how we, in our paths of life, we go back to our roots sometimes. It kind of takes us back to what we know, what we are passionate about, and it comes full circle. The next question I have for you, because this wouldn't be a brand therapy call if we didn't talk about childhood. Tell me how your childhood which I know a little bit about, how did that form what you do today? Sure. I can't separate what I do today from the way I grew up, right? So I was born and raised in San Diego, California, which sits right on the border with Mexico. And because my parents are from Mexico and they had moved to this country three months before I was born, we went back and forth between San Diego on the U.S. side and Tijuana on the Mexico side my entire childhood. So every weekday, I'd be in the United States going to school and all that. And then on the weekends, we'd go visit family and do our grocery shopping and laundry on the Mexico side because it was way more affordable. And again, our family was there, right? So we wanted to go and see them. And it was such a beautiful way to grow up, right? Two different countries, two different cultures, two different languages. Spanish is my first language. I had to learn English in school. So to be able to have access to all of that growing up was incredible and very influential in terms of the way that I, I viewed the world. I don't know if I fully realized this when I was eight or nine years old, right? But I was seeing how people lived in San Diego, which is, you know, one of the most expensive places to live in the world. And then I was also seeing how people lived in Tijuana. And there are places in Tijuana where folks make their houses with whatever they can find, right? Whether that's cardboard or, you know, sheet metal. And I think from very early on, I started to notice, wow, what a contrast in the opportunities that people have access to, to the barriers, to the resources. And certainly, you know, my parents also instilled in me a sense of trying to be mindful of how, what my neighbors need, how I can help my neighbors. But I think also just something about seeing that immense contrast between how life looked on the San Diego side and how life looked on the Tijuana side, that it just instilled in me this wondering about you know, should it be that way? Should there actually be more equality and equity across um, different neighborhoods and different parts of the world? So that was very influential for me. It was just growing up on two sides of the border in two different countries. I love that. You know, I lived in San Diego for a little bit of my life, six years. I loved it. So when you were talking about UCSD, I mean, I didn't go to UCSD. My father did, but I got to go to the university a lot. We drove our bikes and we went into places probably where we shouldn't be in. And I love the, the library. It was just a beautiful library, isn't it? Just a great place. We could drive our bikes from where we lived to the university. So that was really, really fun. And I can totally see what you're talking about, Tijuana and San Diego. And it's so, so close. People don't really realize how fast you can get from one to the other. And we had people come in and even knock our door asking if we spoke Spanish to help them because they would come in through the border, right? And um, it was very interesting times, right? When those things were happening. Obviously, it's a total different thing now, but it was a, an interesting culture 
and all, you know, a lot of people in San Diego were from all over the world, right? Because you got that from the university. Plus there were a lot of Mexicans just because it's the nature so close by. And it was just a really agglomeration of cultures and interests. I remember even being in a high school and the buses would come in from the neighborhoods of the Hispanics and another bus would come in from the neighborhood of the Black or African-American. And so we have like all these different people in the middle of like La Jolla, right? This very high-end, expensive area in San Diego. So it was just great melting pot of all these different things. So that sounds so exciting. And we probably were there at the same time together, but we missed each other somehow in that because you spent your weekends in Tijuana. (laughs) (laughs) We probably crossed each other at some point on the street. We would have had no way of knowing, right? But yeah, I mean, I really connect with what you're saying about San Diego and how just there's so many different cultures from around the world there, certainly because it's on the border, but also because it's right on the Pacific coast, right? And so it's a gateway to Asia too. Lots of Southeast Asian immigrants, East Asian immigrants, Indian immigrants, Middle Eastern, North Africa. I mean, you name it, right? San Diego is incredibly international. And so as I think about this next step that I'm taking into the world of Teach for All and working with countries all around the world that are trying to improve their education opportunity. I think that I just, I felt called to do something again that put me in such an international environment. Kentucky, or where we live now, Louisville, Kentucky, is on the border, but it's a very different kind of border, right? It's the border between Kentucky and Indiana. Not quite the same as being on an international border, both in terms of that border with Mexico, but also that border with Asia, even though it's across an entire ocean. And and so I I do think I felt just called to connect back back into that international space that I grew up with and loved so much in San Diego. That's perfect. So the next question is more about how do you define your personal brand? I think my brand is rooted in how I grew up. So I always speak about growing up on the border, growing up in two different countries, my bilingualism. I mean, that comes up very early on whenever I meet people or if I'm introducing myself. That'll be one of the first things out of my mouth. The other thing that I think is real a real part of my brand was just how much I struggled in school as an English learner, as a child of immigrants, as a child of parents that would give anything to help me, but only had nine years of formal education between the two of them, right? There was only so much that they could step in and do. So I flunked seventh and eighth grade in middle school. I was completely on a path to becoming a dropout. Certainly felt like school wasn't for me. And then in high school, I got into a special program that was for students just like me with struggling students that were on a path to dropping out. And I had these three teachers back to back to back in ninth, 10th, 11th and 12th grade that just believed in me more than I believed in myself and just poured themselves into trying to get me back on the right track. And they did. Within a couple of semesters, I'd gone from a failing student to a near 4.0 student. I got to graduate very successfully, speak to my graduating high school class. And I was a completely different person when I graduated than I was when I went into high school, just in terms of what I believed was possible for someone of my background with the challenges that I'd experienced. So from that point forward, I feel like I just consistently have felt this sense of responsibility to pay those opportunities forward. Why should I be so lucky? If I had a chance to go from the wrong path, so to speak, or from a path of of struggle to a path of success, Every person should have a chance to do that. 
And to the extent that I can contribute, whether as a donor or as a volunteer, as a business owner, as an employee, whatever it is that I can be doing to contributing to paying those opportunities forward, I think that's become a strong part of my brand. And then the last thing I'll say on, on I think, what makes up my brand is 20 plus years of business development experience on the for-profit and nonprofit side. And I think that's what's allowing me now to launch my own business. I've wanted to have my own business since I was a teenager, you know, 18, 19 years old. I had this dream of I'm going to have my own business and all this. But what was I going to offer? I had no idea what I could offer of value. Little did I know that if you just allowed 20 years of consistent experience within this area of business development, and especially as a person of color, as someone who grew up in two different countries, that I'd now have this very unique skill set and very unique perspective that, that I could offer to clients. That's, I think, in a nutshell, how I would tie the whole brand question together. So let me go to the next question. When I ask you, when did you know you became famous? I know people always laugh about this question, but it's really about your fame story, right? Everybody has a fame story. We believe that fame is honorable. It's not just for celebrities or singers. Everybody has their own type of story. And I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, I'll own that fame can look very different to different people, right? And so for me, one that comes to mind that's kind of a recent fame story is here in Louisville. I was honored to be recognized as a 40 under 40 leader last year. Of course, I was going to lean into my brand, right? So they asked me if I would feature a talent that I have. And I was like, okay, what talent do I feature? Well, I love salsa dancing. I love salsa, merengue, bachata, all the Latin dances. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to record myself dancing with my son, Isaiah, on my shoulders to one of my favorite salsa songs. And so I recorded that and it was a hit. People loved the video. They showed it at the awards event. And so now it's time for me to go up and receive my award. And every single honoree got to go up and actually receive their award. And so as I go up there to receive it, I'm like, okay, how do I, again, harken back to my brand? Well, I have to dance after I get my award, right? On stage, I got to do it. So they give me my award. And of course, I salsa my way off of the off of the stage. So now when I meet people in, in town around Louisville, sometimes they're like, I know you. Why do I know you? And then it'll click for them. And they'll be like, you're the guy who salsa on stage at the 40 there under 40. That's your fame story. You are the salsa dancer, the famous salsa dancer. <laughs> but, you know, and, and it's beautiful to bring out your culture while you're doing that, right? It's like you get honored for this, this amazing award, but also you get to show part of who you are and your brand. Love that. So let's get a little deeper into the conversation. And let me ask you, what is your greatest fear? Yeah, that one's a deep one. I don't think you'll be surprised to hear that it connects to this sort of feeling of responsibility that I have deep in my heart for paying my opportunities forward, right? So I think my biggest fear, one of my biggest fears, if not the biggest fear, is that I will get to the end of my time on earth and I will not have done enough to pay those opportunities forward, right? That there will be some kind of a deficit still there between the opportunities and the help and the support and the belief that I received from my parents, from my brother, from my family members, from neighbors, from employers, from mentors, all of them, that they will have poured more into me than I then poured back into the world and into others. That's why every day, <laughs> one way or another, whether it's in my day job, in my business, in my volunteering, in my donating, I'm constantly 
doing something that pays the opportunity forward. But what's behind that, and, and I'm sure, you know, no surprise to you as you ask this question to people, many times we don't share the fear that drives our actions, right? And right. I think for me, as much as there is something that's about core values and about a desire to live into my values, I wouldn't wake up at 5.30 a.m. every morning to get the work started year after year after year if there wasn't some fear component there of I will not have paid enough forward to others. It's so interesting because this question brings a lot of, I don't have any fear, right? Or what are you talking about? I don't think that way. And it's interesting to see the different places where people go with it. I let people reframe it. If they want to reframe it to something else, that's fine because that's how they think about it in in their head. But I do believe like you, sometimes fear helps us understand how we can be better individuals if we can reframe the question or the space or the idea or the concept, right? So it's just interesting. Everybody has a different answer and I love it because it's just fascinating. So to this question, because I, I think that that's a really good way to think about it. Was there a moment in time where you felt something was holding you back? Mm. As you were talking about fear and reframing fear into a motivator, right? Because of my background in struggling with education and then actually being professionally in the education space, I've learned a lot about the concept of stereotype threat and how for folks that come from some kind of an underserved or underrepresented background, whether that's gender-wise, income-wise, language-wise, ability-wise, whatever it is, there can be this constant thing in the back of your head that says, if I'm not as successful as I want to be, it's going to prove the stereotype about part of my identity, right? So as someone who identifies as Latinx, Mexican-American, as an immigrant, that was definitely something that I experienced. And in thinking about not being successful in school, there was a sort of a really vicious cycle there of, hey, I'm not being successful in school. That's proving the stereotype that folks of my background aren't great at school. Then that's making me even be worse at school. And, it, you know, so it's just this really rough, vicious cycle that can happen there. But once I was able to have some support and some belief from some of my teachers in high school, it did turn around for me. And what it started to become was, I'm going to show them just how successful I can be, right? I'm going to show society, I'm going to show the naysayers that I can get straight A's, that I can go to a top university, that I can get my bachelor's, right? That I can get into these really top-notch programs and companies and nonprofits. So yeah, I totally agree with you that sometimes that thing that at some moment was holding you back if you can have the right support, if you can have the right mental orientation around it, it, it totally can become a motivator. Yeah, I, you just made me think of so many things, but I didn't necessarily think the way you did, but I can see how when somebody put a barrier against something that I wanted to do or thought I could do, I just went all out on it. But you know, a lot of times, As a woman and being Hispanic, you do sometimes don't consciously think through those things and you, you probably are doing it for those reasons unconsciously. And so you're always fighting with yourself at some point, right? And a lot of times I don't see 
the bias right forth. I, it takes me a long time to then get there. You know, oh, maybe this person had a bias against me. Because a lot of times, you know, if you just look at me, you probably wouldn't know that I'm educated, that I have a master's, that I have this or that I have that, um, or that created certain things. But when you start talking about things knowledgeably or educatedly, they start to see you in a different light, right? They start to see things. And a lot, I never, never really thought about that consciously, but now because it's, we're in that space at the moment, right? Mm -hmm. And I now consciously can see it more, right? And it's just fascinating. But there was something you said that I want to tap into. And this is another kind of controversial question at times, which fascinates me. So tell me about your mentors. Now, Mm -hmm. there's people that think about mentoring in different ways. Maybe you picked a mentor. Maybe you don't call it a mentor. Maybe you think of it as a mentor, but you don't necessarily think it's a mentor. So, but how do you, how do you define that? And who has been there for you to take you to the next level? Because we don't do this by ourselves. Well, I think mentors can be all shapes and sizes, and that could be someone younger, it can be someone older, it could be someone that's further along than you professionally or less far along than you professionally. So I, I think that term is is very flexible, right? But one person that comes to mind as a mentor is my high school friend, Mukunda, Mukunda Singh. He and I went to the same program together that I was talking about that made such a huge difference for me. So we got to know each other really, really young, and we've absolutely stayed in contact the entire time after he got married and had kids, after I got married and started to have kids. And what I love about Mukunda as a mentor is that I can call him completely out of the blue. We may not have talked for a year, six months, whatever it may be, but I can call him out of the blue and it's just starting like it was no difference in time at all. Like there's no time lost. Like we had been spending the last 10 years day to day after day talking to one another. And what I find myself doing a lot with Makunda is in those moments when I'm feeling most anxious about what's going on in the world, I feel like that's the first person I think about reaching out to because he has such a calm and soothing spirit that I feel like no matter how tumultuous things are, no matter how choppy the waters are in the world, whether it's you know in our country or it's internationally or whatever it is, Makunda just stays completely grounded in, hey, here's what really matters. And don't let yourself get too stressed out. (laughs) I love having Makunda in my life. And I can talk about hundreds of other folks that at one form, at one time or another, have picked up a phone or have read an email or a text message from me. Not to mention the folks who are closest to me, my wife, my mom, my dad, my brother, my niece, my nephew, other really close friends. But it's wonderful to be able to have that network that you know that you can rely on. And we'll just give you a different perspective on what's going on and get you out of your head. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I want to meet Makunda too sometime. I think you do. <laughs> so, tell me about a time where you felt something was impossible, but then it became possible for you. For sure. Making the impossible possible. When I think back to that time period where I had made the transition from for-profit world into nonprofit world and Went off to Houston. It was the first time I'd ever lived away from San Diego, by the way, uh, was when I moved to Houston to teach. That was a big leap for me to move away from my hometown, be away from parents and family you know, for the first time. But I did it, went out there and I was teaching, was really starting to get this idea in my mind of, hey, maybe I want to become a principal. So I'm going to 
stay in teaching for a while and then maybe I'll start my own school. I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. So this idea of like, maybe I can start my own school sounded really, really great. But I started to hear these rumors that Teach for America was looking at starting a chapter in San Diego in my hometown. And I had known from the moment that I applied to the program and got into the program and received my assignment to teach in Houston, that I wanted to have that kind of a program in my hometown. But there wasn't one. Teach for America never had a presence there formally. And so when I heard that Teach for America was trying to launch, I thought, okay, I want to help. How do I get involved? And the more I learned about it, the more I realized that there was an opportunity to actually apply to be the founding executive director. So I applied, got the role, went back to San Diego in 2012, and uh, Teach for America let me know, here are your three conditions for us to be able to launch in San Diego. You've got to raise $4.5 million. You have to start a partnership with San Diego Unified, which is the largest school district in the region. And it's, it's one of the largest in the country, more than 100,000 students. And you have to start a partnership with a university that will credential the teachers, right? Those are three things that without those, you cannot have a Teach for America chapter in San Diego. I don't think I'd ever had even $4,000 in a bank account in my life, right? <laughs> so the concept of $4.5 million just seemed absolutely out of reach for someone of my income background and, and for someone that had not been in that world of you know, multi-million dollar type activities. But I was very passionate about this concept. I was very committed to the idea of seeing this program in my hometown where I just, my heart and soul is in that San Diego region, right? And so I wanted to see more opportunity in education for my own family members, for the kids in the community. And so I went after it. And of course, it wasn't just me, right? It was a whole team of people, both formal and informal folks that uh, signed up to help with the task and some very influential local uh, leaders and donors that stepped up to be there alongside me. But we did end up doing it. We didn't quite get to $4.5 million. We got to 2.5. We did start the partnership with San Diego Unified. We did get a partnership with San Diego State for the credentialing. Uh, and it didn't take us six months, which was the original timeline. It, it took us eight months to get to that point. But it was sufficient to say, you know what? Let's do it. Let's get it off the ground. We'll have to do additional fundraising to make up the difference. But yeah, in 2013, we, we launched with a relatively small number of teachers. But again, it got our foot in the door. We grew the number of teachers and the number of students we were serving over the next six years, eventually getting it up to you know more than 3,000 students that were being taught by a Teach for America teacher every year. And it was, for me, one of my greatest accomplishments, right? To not only be able to do something that seemed so out of reach to begin with, but to be able to do it in service of the place that I consider, you know, my roots and my place where, where I grew up, that if, if I have a choice, you know, will be one of the things that goes on my tombstone alongside some other accomplishments. But all of the things that I would like to see recognized when I pass are things that have to do with that whole concept of paying it forward, of giving back in the way that I've been given. Oh, I love that. It's, it's like you made the impossible possible, not just for you, but for so many other people. So I love that. Now, tell me lessons learned. Tell me one or two lessons learned of your life that are, have been super profound for you. I'll start with one that feels a little more recent and, and certainly one of the most profound, and it's vulnerability. And I think we hear a lot about that these days, and, and that's good. I'm, I'm glad that more folks are thinking about it and trying to practice it. 
certainly hear Brene Brown from folks, you know, a lot uh, and hear from Brene Brown. And she's been really great at further popularizing and, and expanding the knowledge around vulnerability. But I, I think there's just something really powerful about someone willing to say, here's how I've messed up. Here's where I went wrong. Here are my fears. Here are my insecurities. That was probably always true that there was power to leaders being willing to go there. But I think it's even more true now than ever. I think there's some generational shifts that have happened. I think there's just a greater emphasis on equity and giving folks of all backgrounds opportunities to lead. And I think when you get into a space like that, where you're really trying to have equity of opportunity for leadership, that vulnerability component becomes even more important. And so I I have found that if I can, as best as I can, and I, I don't do it as well as I should every time, but to the extent that I can really be willing to share those places where I've messed up or I've made a mistake and the places where I still need to be better and what my fears and and insecurities are, that it it just really makes a difference for folks to be able to hear that and say, okay, if he's in X fancy role or, you know, doing X fancy thing, and he's willing to be vulnerable and share that, then I can also follow in those footsteps. I can also take on that leadership. I can also take on those roles. And, And again, that just ties back into the paying it forward thing. Whatever I accomplish to me is of no value if I'm not creating some form of path for someone else to accomplish something similar. And I think vulnerability goes goes right into that. It's so beautiful. You know, I, I think a lot of people think that, especially when I decided to do this podcast around branding, and then I called it brand therapy, because branding is nothing if you don't get down deep into mm. who you are, into emotions, into really understanding, opening up, for yourself first to see, right? A lot of times we don't want to see those things either, you know, and then for others to see them. You made it very clear for me just in this moment that that's really what I love doing is is getting deep into the conversation where people can open up and be transparent from the get-go instead of the superficial conversation where yeah, great. You're doing some amazing stuff. That's awesome. Right. But like, what is a really, really, how did you get to where you are understanding your true essence or, you know, what I call the fame essence that everybody has to become famous for what they do. I love this conversation that we're having. So let me ask you one last question before we go on to our different things that we do, but let me ask you what's next for David Lopez, like in the next five or 10 years, where do you see yourself? I mean, I I was even thinking about this earlier when you brought up the fear conversation, when you brought up the lessons learned conversation. So I'm taking on this more focused take on my consulting, right? And to more narrowly focus on working with entrepreneurs of color that are trying to raise millions or multi-millions of dollars for investment capital. And because of my own lived experience and my own experience on both the for-profit and the nonprofit side in selling and in raising that kind of sums of dollars, I know some of the mental game that goes into that, right? I know the imposter syndrome that kicks in. I know the, like you were saying earlier, you don't do it consciously. It happens subconsciously that sometimes you have that voice in your head that's saying, ah, you're not going to pull this off, right? I know the mental game that goes into standing in front of a potential investor and saying, here's my business, here's how much I need, and here's what we're going to accomplish. 
And so what I see over the next five to 10 years, both in terms of my day job, which will be working with heads of development and CEOs across the Teach for All network in a variety of different countries and regional contexts, but also the consulting that I will do is growing in that coaching skill to be able to be there with folks in a vulnerable way, in a listening way, not to be there to tell them, here's how you are going to do things, but to be able to really help them tap their own wisdom. I know that at the end of the day, most of us already know the answers to our questions. But when we're just by ourselves, we can really second guess that we actually have arrived at the right answer. And sometimes we need that partner, whether it's my friend Makunda or it's a conversation like this day with you, Yamoka. We need that external partner that can help us realize that we actually do have the wisdom and the skill and the talent and the expertise to achieve our wildest dreams. So I, I think, again, over the next five to 10 years, it's further refining and strengthening that coaching skill. And, and uh, as my good friends at La Casita Center say, the skill and the strength for accompanying people, not leading them, right? Not telling them what to do, but accompanying them in their journey. That's what I see for myself in the next five to 10 years. So tell me, where can the listeners reach you? Where can they find you? If they need some of this consulting services, how do they get a hold of you? Perfect. So I'll give uh, my phone number and my email address. So uh, feel free to reach me at uh, my phone number, 619-261-8055. Yes, I still have my San Diego area code. It's been that hard for me to let go of it. Or uh, at my email address, david.lopez dot mr59 at gmail.com. If there's any way that I can be helpful, please let me know. Oh, I love it. Nobody's ever given their phone number before. So this is the, you guys need to take advantage of this. <laughs> Call David. So David, I so appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It's been such a wonderful talk. I knew it would be. And I know that we haven't hung out in a long time, but we will because things come full circle and, and then we get to see you and have some fun and can't wait to maybe, I'm not a great salsa dancer, but I'd love to see you salsa dance. So maybe in the next round, we can we can do some of that. So appreciate you, Yamoka. I've always appreciated just how much you have reached out to me and, and made a space for me to, to have conversations like the one we had today. And always a pleasure to, to spend some time with you now and in the future. And I know that I forced you to come into this nonprofit of Hispanics and you were like, no, I can't do it. And then you just easily kind of were taken in by all these amazing Hispanic leaders. So I so appreciate you and I can't wait to see what's for you in the future. Thank you for listening to The Brand Therapist. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite pod player. If you'd like to connect with me on social, you can find me at Yamoka Rodriguez Branding, Bespoke Branding Agency, or email me at yamoka at yamoka.com. Thanks for listening.